0: murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are True Law Stories, brought to you by com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. All right, on this episode of True Law Stories, we're going to talk about immigration, asylum, and accidents. I've got Roshni Patel. Roshni say hi. Hi. And Roshni has went to law school twice. We're gonna tell about why she had to do that and why she's so much smarter for it now. And why it's not easy for immigrants to come to the US, the types of asylum, especially for per- persecution and abuse, and why abuse is harder to escape in other countries. The three most important or the most important evidence in winning asylum. As well as the process of finding out if when someone finds out that they have received asylum, it's pretty crazy. And how scary that whole process is, and the truth about frivolous asylum cases, all this untrue law stories. And of course, this is brought to you by videocasetory.com. Uh, one of the best ways to grow your business, whatever your type of business, from a law practice to a roofing company to a digital agency is through customer stories. You go to videocasestory.com, or we'll show you how to get more referrals, 13 ways, more ways to get more referrals with Video Case Story. So go to videocasestory.com slash bigfish to learn more. All right, let's get started. Let's talk a little bit about all the places you've been and all the types of places you practice law <laughs>
1: sure thing so my background is I am I was born in India so I lived in India with my family and then we migrated to United Kingdom so I was living in London the whole family moved there I did my studies there I did my A-levels I did my law school over there and the family background is that everybody in my family is a lawyer. So my dad was a lawyer, my brother's a lawyer, and then I turned out to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a dentist, but then again, so it's a family route. I, I took the family route. I was then working at a couple of central London downtown offices. I wanted to get that experience. Um, they used to do a lot of real estate, family law, so all different types of laws. So I, I got the gist of how every single law works. But ultimately, I joined my dad's law firm. So it became a family business. I used to practice immigration, personal injury, and a little bit of family law as a law firm. Then life happened, marriage happened, and I then moved to United States. So I got married, and then I had to move to United States and in Florida. Now, the funny thing is, I think some people don't know that, but every state has a different law school requirement. For example, if he was located in New York. I could just take a bar exam on my foreign degree and I can be an attorney practicing immigration there. But Florida did not like that. So I had to then go to law school again for three years, pass the bar exam. And here I am. So I I passed the bar exam in 2020 and became an attorney then.
0: (laughs) Wow. Wow. You had to go to law school twice.
1: I went to law school twice, yes. It was either me or it was my husband. So my husband's a pharmacist in India. He then came to the United States. He became a pharmacist again. So it was like, no, I'm not coming to the United Kingdom. and going to the pharmacy school again. So it's you.
0: <laughs> wow. And so you passed the bar and did you go and you went to practice for yourself right away?
1: No, I was actually working as an immigration attorney and a prominent downtown Orlando law firm. So I worked there for, I want to say about a year, and then I actually became pregnant. So then it was, I, and I was going to open my own firm in the future. That was a plan, but I always like to make sure that I have an experience, how to deal with clients, how to deal with cases before I, I take that step. I became pregnant and then rest is history. So my husband, okay, that was a plan. Why don't you just open your own firm, work from home while you can, and then you'll have a baby by the time the baby turns. At an age, you will have an established practice.
0: That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's a you got a lot on your hands right now, <laughs> but it's, it's but immigration. What drew you to immigration law?
1: I think uh, I I think personally, my experience of how I from a very young age migrated to different countries and how the time, the energy, the work, the struggle that it takes a person to finally settle in a country that's not your home country. That kind of guided me into seeing the struggles of an immigrant. While, and while I, I was studying, my father was an immigration attorney in the United Kingdom. So I was seeing the cases. So I grew up watching that. I grew up learning that. And I think it's people's struggle, people's willingness to settle in a different country. Being an attorney and helping them, guiding to the, with the right advice helps.
0: And what do you, there's obviously immigration is a very hot topic right now. What do you think people's biggest misconceptions are of people immigrating to the US and how easy it is and the types of people that are coming here?
1: Let me tell you my recent experiences. A lot of people are crossing the border right now. People think that coming and crossing the border As soon as they enter the United States, it's going to be very easy for them to find work, to settle into the lifestyle, to integrate into the United States system. It's not true. You don't get a driver's license. You don't get work permit authorizations right away. It takes a year until you are eligible for some sort of relief. Imagine somebody who spends money or imagine somebody who just came and crossed the border with their family. But we don't have any help or support, or no mode of transport, or no mode of communication, a language barrier as well. So it's very difficult. You cannot straight away just start a life here. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes money. It takes uh, a right legal guidance to for you to integrate or apply for even some relief.
0: Yeah, and a lot of people come here not just for work, but they come here for asylum too. Can you describe mm-hmm. that a little to me? And you have a few stories of that too.
1: Sure. Asylum. So there is a there's this, the type of relief in asylum is when a person who is persecuted based on your religion or your race, your gender or your or you come in one type of or you are in one type of social group. For example, let's say somebody is persecuted that is threatening to their lives, um, persecuted based on their they're from an LGBT community, or they are from a particular religion, like, for example, Muslim religion or Christianity religion in a country where there's a harm to their life just because they belong into that community. Those people can come here and ask for an asylum based on the fact that there's a past, present, or future persecution based on the group that I'm included in. So a lot of people, we see a lot of cases recently in Venezuela when there was an issue in Haiti. There's a lot of issues of political unrest going on right now. So those people would be the best people who can come here in the U.S. and apply for asylum based on the political unrest or that they belong into that certain group.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And and what other types of and what when did these cases come through? And you, I've seen like you have family law cases going on at the same time, too, right, where people are uh, asylum here, but also being persecuted or harmed by their spouse in another country
1: Mm -hmm. that's correct yes like how I was saying that I recently I had a case where an individual seeked for asylum so she was here in the U.S. she came to the U.S. she flew from Egypt to the U.S. just to ask for asylum based on the fact that she belonged in a group where she was married to somebody and she was being abused by her husband it was a domestic violence issue but she went through so much, she had so much evidence to show the abuse and where the country that she came from, she belonged into that one of the social group of women who were being abused by their husband. She seeked an asylum and she was granted asylum within four months. Her story was that she was married to one of the persons that she knew. The husband actually approached her. She was studying in a university in Cairo Husband approached her. Everything was fine. The family were very happy about it. Suddenly, as soon as they get married, everything changes for them. So the husband was not very loving. Of course, there was physical abuse, physical violence. Even when she was pregnant with her baby, there was physical violence. There were numerous police reports. In some countries, there is a lot of corruption. So even though, and because of their links and connections to higher officials, She was not able to do anything about it. She was sent home. After the report was filed, they would call the husband that, hey, a report has been filed for your arrest. They would just send the woman home and then she would go back into that abusing world again. She had her family here in the U.S. So she had a sister in the U.S. She came here, gave birth to one of her son here and then she went back to her country. So one of the son son or the daughter was a U.S. citizen. But she would come here, she wanted to settle here, she was studying for a pharmacy school years old, so she wanted to progress into her life and have a future for her. But the abusive relationship just took everything away from her. So finally she decided that enough is enough. She had kids, the kids were very scared when the father was abusing the wife in front of them. So I think she took that step to do it for her kids and she moved to the United States and applied for asylum.
0: And that's not an easy thing to do, is it?
1: It's not, especially without any support. I think being a woman, I do understand that, how hard it is to break out of that relationship that you saw everything, you felt that the person was your own, and you're having, having babies and kids with them. Like something will change, something will change, but it never does. And finally, I think it's still in this world, in this century, being a single mother is still very difficult in certain countries and none of the and they don't take that step to break out of that it's still being seen as a taboo
0: yeah oh and leaving all your family all that's got to be difficult and everything you've known and also speaking another language And, and so when you first heard about this case and you were taking it on what were your immediate thoughts
1: My immediate thoughts were, why did you take this long? Why did you suffer for this long? I think she was in an abusive relationship for, I think, more than seven years, having three kids. So seven years and you just keep going and going and there's no way out. Even though she came to the U.S. to visit, she would still go back. I was like, why didn't you stay here? Why didn't you do something for yourself? But at that time, when you, as you mentioned, the families are involved, it's something that how would your family react to it? If you say, I want a divorce or I want to, I do not want to live with him anymore. I don't know if she told her family about the abuse. I'm pretty sure she did. But even after telling your family that my husband is abusive to me, you still are expected to be with that person. That's just, I just could not, I could not understand or believe that.
0: Yeah, and there, there are culture in certain cultures and familiar cultures. It's not just overarching cultures. It's certain families that's, that's just part of their culture. And it's sad. So you get this case. And what was involved in winning her in, asylum?
1: When, when you file an asylum, I think the main and the most important evidence, piece of evidence is a personal statement. So the personal statement is about what happened to you. Why are you applying for asylum? Why do you think there's a threat to your life? You have to explain from the beginning till the end as to what led you to come to the United States and ask for an asylum. So the story has to be, not the story, but what happened to her has to be credible. And when you submit that personal statement, for example, if you said that he abused me on so date and I went ahead and filed a police report. If you say that, then you have to make sure that you supplement the police report with the petition. Because it's just saying something and showing something is completely different. Mm-hmm. We then supplemented a lot of evidence to what her personal statement said. And she had that evidence, which is good. Sometimes people just flee their country without any documents. And that's the cases that I'm most worried about. I'm worried about because I know how genuine that case is. But you don't have anything to show or prove that the abuse or the persecution did happen. And I also believe that one of the main things that led to her approval was her credibility as a witness, as a victim. But she was called for an interview. Usually what happens in asylum cases is they go on forever and ever. It can take up to 10 years or five years or 16 years. Some cases have been pending for even longer than that. But her case, when we filed her case, she was called for an interview in Miami within four months, which is very fast and quick. We did not expect that. Um, So she went to the interview and the officer asked her all the questions based on what was on her personal statement and what was in her peti- asylum petition. And uh, she also took her son, who actually witnessed the abuse, and he was very scared of the husband, along with her. Usually don't, they don't ask, officers don't ask questions to minors, but they did ask a couple of questions to her son as well. So I think when she presented, I did not attend the interview with her, but when you when the client goes in, when the applicant goes in and presents themselves and, how, and the officer sees how genuine they are, based on their credibility, I think that worked for her. Wow. The officer could have seen how genuine and how scared, even the son, how scared he is.
0: And were there any hiccups or was she granted asylum pretty quickly?
1: No. So she, so her decision was pending. So the officer said that you have to come back on the date to the office to get a copy of the decision. Usually what happens is sometimes they would they would deny it uh, right on the spot or they would tell them to come back on this date or they would say that we will make a decision and mail it out to you. But she was told to go back for the decision. But some and clients or some applicants are so scared to go back. They're like, oh, are they going to detain me? Are they going to deport me on that day? What should I do? Shall I go? Shall I not go? We should always go. There's always a relief available. They would not, nobody will just deport you and put you on a plane right there and then.
0: And so did you go back with her? Tell me about that.
1: No, I did not go back with her. She did not. She did not take an attorney to the interview, but I got a call from her. She was very happy. She also called my paralegal, like, Hey, and she was Arabic speaking. And I have a paralegal who speaks Arabic. So she called my paralegal and she was very happy, tears. And she was like, Oh, I'm so happy. Thank you so much. But she called us to let us know. And before her interview, I always prep my clients. I always tell them what to expect at the interview. So we went through the process of interview, the type of questions they might ask you. And I think that helped her a lot. And she was like, they asked exactly the similar questions. And it was very easy for her because she was already prepped for it, what to expect.
0: And when, tell me about her reaction when she found out she had had been granted asylum.
1: She was very happy. She was very happy. I think from what I heard and from what I sensed, she was very relieved that she can now start a new life in a country without any hiccups, without struggling, without asking for anybody's help because she could now technically work or get a green card or care for her kids, send them to school without having somebody else's support. I think that was her main priority because I could see that she was a very independent woman. She was very educated. She was a pharmacist. So she was very educated and I know, excuse me, I know how difficult it is to ask for somebody's help when you have been independent all your life.
0: And when, so she, this happened, how long ago did this happen? Sorry. How long would she granted asylum?
1: So she they, so she gets a granted asylum. It's indefinite, but then you can ask for a green card a year later. Gotcha. So after a year, now I think it would be this year that she would be now applying for her green card after the one year of the asylum grant.
0: And when someone's granted asylum, obviously you've worked with a lot of these clients. How does how does their life change afterwards? How have you seen their lives change?
1: Okay, let's compare somebody who's been granted asylum and somebody who has not been granted asylum or their asylum is currently pending without a decision being made. So <clears throat> somebody who has a pending asylum, they can apply for work permits while the asylum is pending, but they can only do that 180 days after the petition is pending. Up until then, they cannot work. So for six months, you're out of work. You cannot work without authorization. So you are out of work. You cannot work driving license. You cannot get a driving license until an asylum is filed and you get a receipt for it. But with somebody who's being granted asylum, they get a good social security number. They can get driver license. They can work without any restrictions. They can apply for green card straight away after one year. Somebody who's not being granted asylum, they are in a limbo because they don't know when their petition is going to be heard or when a decision will be made. So they just keep renewing their employment authorizations every now and then. So this ultimately gives them a right to live in the country.
0: Wow. Oh, and so you've done this quite a bit. And once that once they get the right to live in this country, what do you generally see as the path afterwards? Are they generally pretty happy to be here?
1: They are very happy to be here they remember the reason why they filed asylum is because they're scared that somebody was going to kill them or they saw the end of it but now you are living in a country where you are not scared of that person harming you or you're not scared that persecution will happen but on top you are getting an opportunity to do something for yourself without any restrictions i think their main concern is for some people is oh i if you don't give me a right or a green card or U.S. citizenship, it's okay, but I just don't want to go back to my country because I will not be, it, I will not be able to live or I would not survive there. For everybody who like, files for an asylum, I think their main concern is genuine threat.
0: Yeah, and it is. And I feel like people are worried that people come here and take advantage of the system, but these people really have no sense of that anything's owed to them. And I, I feel like they work harder when the, the, these
1: they're not here right. to take advantage. I do not. Okay, I do not think there is a way to take advantage of this system. Because let's say there are there. There is a term in immigration that we call is called frivolous asylum cases that people just come here because they're they don't have any other benefit or they don't consider or they don't they don't count under any other relief, so they just file asylum because asylum is the easiest to file and asylum is going to get them work permit. But you have to remember that you will not get the advantage because your claim is frivolous. Any judge or any officer, immigration officer or immigration judge will find out, because they've been doing this for years and years, that you have a fake asylum case. So eventually, after one, one year or one month or 10 years or 10 months, you will know that all your relief or your asylum is denied. And after that, you do not have any relief. So you will just be living here. Now, imagine if you do not have an asylum case, that means that you cannot renew your employment authorization card. So no EADs driving licenses now as we're changing the driving license how it should be so you cannot fly on the plane or you have to have uh, the real ID driver's license so let's say everything is everything all your petitions and the immigration judge and the BIA appeal everything is done then you are in the limbo where you cannot apply for anything like no work permit or no driving license that means that your advantage that you are trying to take has ended So I do not think that you can take advantage of your system. Yes, they can misuse the system for a few years or a few months, but that's about it really. But there are real asylum cases where people are in real need of that benefit.
0: Yes, yeah, definitely. But like that story you just told us. And then people also, you, tell us a little bit more about the other types of cases that you handle in immigration, because there's a lot of different types of immigration cases out mm-hmm.
1: there. I, I practice mostly my, I want to say about um, 80% practice is immigration and 20 is around personal injury. In immigration, I handle family-based petitions, which means that a hus- husband or like a spouse can apply for their spouses who are out of the country or in, inside the country that's marriage based petitions. Family-based petitions, a father, a parent can file for the father. A parent can file for the child or the child is filing for their parents. I do investor visas. So I do intra-company transfer visas. I do H-1B visas, the work permit visas. I do H-1B registrations. I do asylum cases, of course, humanitarian paroles. So all sorts of, oh, citizenship, naturalization. How do I forget that? So I do help people become U.S. citizens too. So all sorts of different type of cases in immigration.
0: And you do personal injury as well, car accidents. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yes, I do personal injury, car accidents mainly, and then property damage. I help my clients. If there's any property damage, I help them with that as well. Slip and fall, malpractice, that sort of cases. But I usually mostly get car accidents.
0: Yes. Well, we're all driving a lot. (laughs) Florida drivers aren't the best. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. I
1: can agree to that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> fantastic. Roshni, this has been fantastic. We'll put a link to your website, rpatel.law. Where else are you active that people can follow you?
1: So I have a Facebook group, a Facebook page, R. Patel Law. I have an Instagram handle, rpatellaw. So yeah, you can follow me
0: on that. Yeah. And you've put a few videos out there on YouTube as well.
1: Yes, I have. I do Facebook, uh, Facebook lives on uh, topics that I think my clients are interested or if something else, like for example, H-1B registration open in March. So I would do a Facebook live so that people can get more information. I also try to do it in my, so I'm Gujarati, Indian, so I try to do that in my own native language so that it it reaches more people.
0: Yes, that's fantastic. That is a great resource. i will put a link to all these resources in the show notes. Rashi, thank you so much for being on True Law Stories.
1: Of course. Thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: And thank you all for taking Roshni on our, on your journey. This has been Ryan Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by videocasestory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need video case stories for your business. Go to videocasestory.com to learn more.